but you're listening to Family Life at Cornerstone. A weekly devotion about what is taking place in the life of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. My name is Justin Wheeler. I am the preaching pastor for Cornerstone, and I am joined by Cody Hickman. Cody, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Great to be here. As you know, Cody is our minister of music. He's been serving here at Cornerstone for over a year and he's just done a wonderful job. And Cody, what's happening in your life right now? What do you want the people to know about that's going on in your life now? Well, right now, the, the big thing that's going on that we're kind of sharing is our trip to Haiti that's coming up at the end of the month. Um, it is now less than a month away. Wow. And yeah, <laughs> the tensions are high right now as far as making sure that we get everything in before we leave. But uh, definitely ask our... Uh, our church and our listeners will be praying for us as we grow closer to that day and as we get ready to go on this yeah, trip. Yeah, it's, it's exciting, and I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. We definitely need some prayer. Um, we're not behind in our planning, but it just seems like there's so much more that can be done in the few weeks that we have left. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just about buttoning up all of our plans and making sure that our lessons are ready to go because we're going to be doing a lot of teaching while we're there. Um, taking six different people this year that have never gone to Haiti which is going to be exciting, interesting, maybe a little bit challenging, but I think it's going to be great. So please pray for us in that. That's coming up at the end of June, early July. And then, well, there's some other stuff happening. We, we just moved our offices from home offices to officing here at the church, and uh, you're still working on that, right? Uh, still working on getting books and bookcases up here. Um, let's see, what else is going on this summer? we got Vacation Bible School that's coming mm-hmm. up uh, second weekend of July or second week of July toward the end. That's going to be a blast. Yeah, it's going to be fun. We love to minister to our kids, share the gospel with our children, teach them the Word of God, and just have fun with them uh, in the few days that we're gathered together. Uh, we've got Cornerstone Academy that's taking mm-hmm. place. And for those of you who aren't familiar with that terminology, Cornerstone Academy is something that we as a church are doing Uh, at various times during the year where we're combining our uh, morning Bible study, our Sunday morning Sunday school classes, uh, our adult classes, our senior high classes, and even some of our junior high classes, bringing them all together and just teaching through a a theological track, if you will, a three- to four-year program where we want to make sure that everybody in the church can learn these things so that they can be better equipped not only for the life of faith but also for ministry down the road. And this summer we're doing biblical theology, which is going to be great. We're, I know you're going to be teaching in that. I'm going to be teaching in that. Several of the other men in the church are going to be teaching. Mark Ritchie is leading the whole program. And then there's something else that's going on this summer. We're doing a, uh, a summer sermon series. I don't say that too many times too fast. Uh, and we're doing it on the doctrine of Scripture, which that's a 10-week study on the doctrine of God's Word. And Man, I've been wanting to do this one for quite some time. We're in the middle of it now, and it's going to be excellent. So lots happening in the life of the church. Uh, but one of the things that we want to talk about today is we want to round out, finish up our discussion on the book that we've been reading together by Jerry Bridges called The Gospel for Real Life. So what are we going to be talking about specifically today, Cody? Well, today we're just been covering many of the aspects of sanctification. Right. And... Um, talking about what definitive sanctification is, what progressive sanctification is, all these highfalutin theological terms that <laughs> right. you occasionally hear our pastor say from the pulpit. <laughs> well, not occasionally. You say it for y'all. Um, but yeah, and it's interesting because this particular 
I mean, the, the title of the chapter that we're going to read, we're going to do two chapters in one. We're going to finish the book up today, so chapter 15 and 16. But the cha- title for chapter 15 is The Gospel and Sanctification. And it's interesting that he would put this chapter title at the end of the book because he's been talking about this the whole book, right? These two subjects, uh, sanctification, how we grow as Christians, how we are sustained as Christians, how we progress and live our lives as Christians, um, and how the gospel informs and fuels that. That's the whole book, right? So what he's doing is he's bringing it to the end, and he's going to, like you said, he's going to define some specific terms, make some very specific applications of the gospel to those terms. And then the, the final chapter is, what's the final chapter? The final chapter is going to be about pretty much what do we do with the gospel now that we've spent uh, these last 15 chapters talking about it and talking about how it applies to us. Well, how does it apply on a global level? Yeah, I, I love the phrase that he uses that um, that the, the gospel is not just about me and about God. The gospel is about the world. And mm-hmm. so he wants us at the end of this book to have an understanding of how the gospel is going to impact the world. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to talk about these two chapters and we're going to start right in uh, chapter 15, page 155, with discussing the gospel and sanctification. Now, what is sanctification? How would you define, just layman's terms, what is sanctification? Well, I think sanctification is, I mean, essentially to the defini- or to the word itself, is to be holy. It's to be set apart and devoted to God's purposes as opposed to the worldly sinful ones that we were devoted to prior to coming to Christ. And when this concept is applied to one's new life in Christ, as opposed to the old one, without him, it means that our hearts, our thoughts, our actions, our values, which used to serve the world and Satan and ourselves, have now been freed from those things by the spiritual renewal of the Holy Spirit, which has ended, uh, ended the reign of unholy terror over our lives, so that we are now new vessels for honorable use. But yeah. not really in the external sense, but from the inside out. Right. And, okay, so if we can go back and think about some other terms we've learned along the way, right? the term justification, it really refers to that point at which we come to faith in Christ and the theological, even the, the theological legal understanding of what just took place at our justification. We were declared righteous by the work of Christ and our trust in the work of Christ. So justification is that point of salvation Um, sanctification is the life of salvation. It's how we live out our lives and how not only we are growing, uh, putting off sin because we're commanded to do so, and growing in righteousness, but also uh, how God by the Holy Spirit is working that in us. Like you said, it's a heart, it's an in-out prospect. This is something that the Holy Spirit is doing in us, and it's working itself out in our lives. Now, he, he kind of he talks about it in a couple of different ways here. He calls it a fundamental change that has occurred in our relationship to sin. Um, now, he hasn't defined sanctification, but he's just referring to it in that way, this process of what we read about in Romans 6. Um, and, and he comes to this expression that Paul uses. The reason he says that a sanctification is a fundamental change that's occurred in our relationship to sin, the reason he says that is because Paul uses this phrase to help us understand that we have died to sin. Now, now, what does Paul mean when he says we have died to sin? I know that's a big question, but what does he mean by that? 
Well, in a weird way, why don't we start with the negative side okay. of that question and say, well, he, Why do we need to die to well, sin? Well, what, is, what it doesn't mean. What it doesn't mean? Okay. <laughs> but um, Paul says we die to sin. What he doesn't mean is that we died either one to the daily committing of sin, as we can see clearly from passages like 1 John 1 9, where we're told that, you know, as a If we say we have no sin, we're yes, a liar, right? And the need to continually confess our sin. Um, but it also doesn't mean that we die to the temptation either. Otherwise, all of the admonitions and exhortations from the New Testament authors to continually be putting off that sin and continually be forsaking that sin in our life would mean, I mean, it'd be pointless. Right. So when we read Romans 6, where, where Paul writes this, um, are, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? There's an argument that he's responding to here, so there's a context, and I'm not really getting into the context so much, but the, the people that he's writing to are trying to understand the nature of grace and how it informs their new lives. And if, if grace is given to abound over our sin, they're saying, shall we just continue to sin so that we can have more grace? And, and Paul says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And then he says, don't you realize that, that you have been ba- who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were actually baptized into his death? You were buried with him by baptism in order that just as he was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And so Paul's making a connection there, right? He's saying that because of our faith in Christ and because of our union with Christ through baptism, we have now been... Um, identified in his death. And that doesn't mean that the temptation is gone. And it doesn't mean that that sin is not still present in us. But what does it mean? Well, it does mean, like as, as you said earlier, that our, our fundamental relationship to our sin has changed. Right. Um, and I, I like to, honestly, you put it in ways that I haven't even thought of as we read through this chapter about, you know, still maintaining our our legal relationship to sin. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is how our legal relationship to sin is also related to our, uh, maybe our more fundamental relationship to sin and our practice of sin. Because um, as he said here, there's there's some people who he mentioned who said that our death to sin was just merely a death to the guilt of sin in the right. legal sense. Which yeah, those are the, totally wiped away. Yeah, those are the two positions that he says conservative evangelical commentators generally hold. One is that we've died to sin in in, in the legal sense in terms of the guilt of our sin. Uh, we're no longer condemned, right? Mm-hmm. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So there is truth to that. Yes. Uh, so that's one perspective. And then the other perspective is something along the lines of we, we, we died to the power of sin. Yes. And that's not wholly true because sin is still present in us, mm-hmm. but we do have the ability, according to what we read in Romans chapter 6, what we read in Galatians chapter 5, what we read in Ephesians chapter 4, and just throughout, you know, 2 Peter chapter 1, throughout the New Testament, that we are to apply our human effort in this work of sanctification to put off sin. Uh, so so how do we understand that? Which one is right? Well, uh Here's our, our third way here. It's yeah. it's not an either or, it's a both and. It's a both and, um, yeah. Because we very much did die to sin's guilt. Um, we died to uh, the guilt that we personally bore, not only for our own personal sin, but for the sin that we had from our legal union with Adam. Um, that went away with Christ, took that away from us with his work on the cross. 
But also, as part of that legal um, guilt being taken away, we also uh, had sin's power taken away from us as well, yeah. in the sense that it was the overall, the exclusive master that we served. Yeah. Which is the other language you see in Romans 6. Yeah, that where, slave terminology, which is really powerful stuff when you think about it. And you can put that in your mind. It's really, really helpful. So um, how, how would you describe it? Well, um, I just think it's interesting, as you see, where, where Adam's sin led to not only his guilt, but also to the power of sin becoming, you know, as more of the penal consequence as well, of the power of sin becoming a uh, just an active principle in his life. And not only in his life, but in our lives as well, being that we are united, legally united to him mm-hmm. and the consequences of his sin. Yeah, oh, one, of my, oh, okay. well, um, one of my professors pointed this out to me in a way that I thought was just it just stuck in my mind. The story, the imagery uh, helped me grasp this concept, especially in Romans 6. You know, Paul uses a lot of legal terminology in the book of Romans, and for good reason. I mean, he's, he's talking to Romans. He's talking to individuals who are living in Rome. The seat of legal authority in the empire is there in Rome, that the highest court in the land is you know, the appealing to the court of Caesar, right, which Paul's going to do later on in his travels in the book of Acts. But one of the things he does in this book is he writes and he uses that legal terminology um, and he uses also slave language. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really important to Rome because Rome was built on the backs of slaves and many of the people that he's writing to are either slave owners or they are current slaves or maybe they're freed slaves. They certainly understand the, con- the, the two contexts of legal terminology and slave terminology. And Paul paints the picture here of what sin has done to us in Adam because of our union with Adam. Uh, as a product of hu- the human race, we are, uh, we've been sold to a master. We are mm-hmm. slaves that have been sold to the master. That master is sin. Sin rules over us. It has dominion over us. It's our master. It tells us what to do, and it it, it conforms us, us to its image in many ways. Um, but then also he says, but the wages of sin is death. It's almost like he says, now we have two masters that are at work in us. Not only is sin our master, but sin sold us on the slave block to death, and now death is our master. And, and the, the imagery there is that we are completely subject to these two masters. But then Christ comes, and he has freed us from our slavery to sin and death. I mean, that's the language he uses in Romans 6, that we are no longer under the, the bondage to those things, but we're under bondage to Christ. And he's a good master. He's a master who died to free us from the other master, and he has called us to live for him. And the imagery is that our shackles have fallen off, right? Christ has freed us from bondage to the authority of a different master, and he's placed us under his authority as a good master. And when I, when I saw that in my mind, when that picture took shape, uh, it was just a powerful way for us to understand how does the work of Christ and our union with Christ through baptism, how does it affect me? Well, my guilt is gone. Legally, before the throne of God, I'm free. And that, that doesn't mean that I don't still have problems and still struggle and still have sin in my life, but it means that before the throne of God, my surety stands, because my surety is not me, it's Him, it's Christ. But it also means that I can live in freedom, 
I can live not in bondage to sin and death any longer, but I can live as a slave to a good master. And so that's kind of what he's trying to get at here. Uh, these two different ways. That, like you said, the third way, it, it refers to both being freed from the guilt of sin and freed from the dominion, the ongoing exercise of authority that sin once held over us. You think that's a good a- illustration of that? Oh, absolutely. Um what I really think is important, especially as we get into the next section where he um, talks about being counted dead to sin, is is the way that this is practically lived out in our own yeah. lives. Um, like you said, that, that image of the shackles falling off, I mean, it's not a mere analogy. It is very much, through Christ, a spiritual reality. Yeah. Um, it's not just some little... Thing that they're telling you to do and just believe this and it will happen. We'll say, no, believe this because it's true. Right. Um, I think it's important to know, just as uh, Jerry Bridges does here in this passage, that Paul doesn't tell us to do something. He tells us to believe Absolutely. something. Um, and the thing that we're to believe is that we are dead to sin and that we're alive to God in Christ, as this passage of Romans 6 tells us, um, that we're no longer regarded as guilty by God, because Christ bore our guilt, right. not only some of it, but He bore all of it. So there's your there's your first aspect of our um, of our death to sin and the legal sense, the death to the guilt, where we no longer have a sentence of guilt; it's gone. Um, the sentence is served, the debt is paid, and practically, I think this is difficult for a lot of us as believers to live out or to believe, um, because one, we still see the ugliness of our yeah. sin. But only now that we're on the other side of faith, we see it even uglier than we did before. <laughs> right. Um, and two, because or I say because we still see it so clearly, we all the more desire to take our guilt into our own hands rather than believe what God has done for us. So in essence, we are angrily denying that the just judge actually administered justice when he pardoned us in Christ. Yeah. Um, it's... It's like a self-flagellation type thing. We're we're still trying to perform penance here for what we're doing, right? Because we still are not trusting in the reality of what God has accomplished for us in Christ, but rather we continue to rely on our own perceptions of our own guilt and our own sin. Yeah, and and I'm glad that he he defines sanctification in the way that he does here. I'm even glad that he titles the this chapter the way the way he does the gospel and sanctification. Whether, whether we're talking about definitive sanctification, which he refers to on page 158, which is that, that initial decisive turning from sin, that initial decisive repentance from sin that is very much the result of this, the work of the Holy Spirit making us alive, causing us to be born again. We refer to that as definitive sanctification, and it flows out of the gospel. It doesn't, it, it, it doesn't bring the gospel into our hearts. It flows out of the gospel from right. our hearts. So definitive sanctification, that point of separation from our old life, whether we're talking about that or we're talking about progressive sanctification, where we are actively growing and being changed from one degree of glory to another and and putting off sin and putting on righteousness. Both of these two things are tied to the gospel and both of these two uh, methods of understanding sanctification flow out of the gospel. We don't abandon the gospel, uh, like you said, to uh, accept some form of self-flagellation or just some form of moralism or legalism. The gospel is always going to be 
the, the love of God, the reality of our union with Christ, our identity as a Christian based upon Christ's work, not ours, is always going to be the ground and motivation for how we live our lives in Christ, pursuing Him in sanctification, right, to be made holy. Now, was there anything else in this particular chapter that you just really wanted to hit on that you thought was really helpful? I mean, there was a couple of great quotes in here. I've highlighted pretty much all of the chapter here, but is there anything specific that you would want to hit on before we move on to the last section? Well, it'd probably just be just kind of a just kind of a summary here of, of thinking, um, of really digging into this need to believe in the realities of the, the spiritual, the unsearchable riches that he's been expounding throughout this entire book. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think one way to think about it is that if if we refuse to believe that we are pardoned, mm-hmm. then why in the world would we live like we are? Um, rather than continue to live our lives in such a way that we tirelessly attempt to clear ourselves before God. Yeah. Um, if we don't believe in the reality of our pardon in Christ, we will not trust Him to subdue the sin in our lives because we do not believe that we were actually in Him to begin with or we don't believe that His sacrifice was efficient enough. Now you're hitting on a subject that I think uh, I think we we all need to hear. Not just I mean us. I need to hear this. Absolutely. <laughs> but you know when we think about sanctification, one one of the things we think about is okay, give me the list. What what do I need to do? <laughs> yeah. Right? What do I need to do? How do I need to live? How can I battle against sin? How can I overcome this? Give me a three step process. And many great teachers have utilized that form of uh, of of teaching to help us gain a knowledge of sanctification, which is not necessarily wrong, but it's not starting in the right place. You, you mentioned it earlier. You quoted Bridges as saying, it's, it's not so much what we must do as what we must believe. How are we going to live free unless we understand fundamentally that we are mm-hmm. free? So again, it's, it's our understanding of our identity in Christ that's going to fuel this and we can't get, we can't grow past that. We shouldn't. We're not intended to. I do have a couple of quotes here at the end. I want to mention before we get into the very last chapter on page one sixty three, as he is, as Bridges is talking about progressive sanctification and the the struggle. He talks about this tension that we feel as believers, um, knowing that we're saved, knowing that we're in Christ, but also continuing to struggle with sin in this progressive way, trying to grow beyond it. And he says this, he says, What is it then that will keep us going in the face of this eternal con- internal conflict, this tension? He says the answer is the gospel. It is the assurance in the gospel that we have indeed died to the guilt of sin, that there is no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus, that the Lord will never count our sins against us, and that we are truly delivered from the reigning power of sin. That is what's going to motivate us and keep us going, even in the midst of the tension between the spirit and the sinful nature. And it just goes back to what we've been saying. The gospel is going to be the fuel of our sanctification. Sanctification doesn't happen apart from the gospel's power. Right? Mm-hmm. And then he had a great quote in here from Horatius Bonar. What do you know about this guy? Not much. Not much. You said that there were some songs maybe that we've sung of his. Um, one final quote. This is coming on page 164. He says, uh, If we would be holy... We must get to the cross and dwell there. 
Else, notwithstanding all our labor, diligence, fasting, praying, and good works, we shall be yet void of real sanctification, destitute of those humble, gracious tempers which accompany a clear view of the cross. In other words, he's saying exactly what we're saying. He's saying if we're really going to grow in holiness, if we're really going to progress, we've got to get to the cross. We've got to hold on to and be anchored in the gospel. At the end of this quote, he says, The free pardon of the cross uproots sin and withers all its branches. Only the certainty of love, forgiving love, can do this. Free and warm reception into the divine favor is the strongest of all motives in leading a man to seek conformity to him who has thus freely forgiven him all trespasses. If, if you didn't understand that quote, but you have the book, go to page 164 and read it and think on it and pray through it. It's a wonderful quote. It's very helpful, and it's showing us how... Our growth in Christ and holiness in Christ is intricately tied to the gospel and will never be free of it. Right? I think in that way, we also see how much faith plays a role in, in sanctification. Yeah. Um, again, faith in the reality of you know, not only what God has done for us, but what he is continually doing in us through what he has done for us. Yeah. Um, it's very much, I think it could be a, kind of a good analogy is actually the Israelites as they're getting ready to cross over into the promised land, you know, they continually hear, well, God has given it into your hand. I think in the same way, it kind of applies to our sin here and the new reality in which we stand is that, you know, it no longer has power over us. And God has given us the power and continually gives us the strength um, to make sure we drive it out of our lives. Yeah. Um, we just need to believe and go forth. That's right. We need to believe. And, you know, he started off this whole book by talking about that phrase, how do we preach the gospel to ourselves daily? That's what we're going to be studying. That's what we've been studying for 16 chapters is how do we preach the gospel to ourselves daily? And now he gets to the end of the book and he says, oh, by the way, this is how you preach the gospel to yourself daily. And this is why you preach the gospel to yourself daily. But then he turns the corner on us. Mm -hmm. He says, not only are we as believers called to preach the gospel to ourselves daily, but we have a, a an even diff a different mission, if you will. The gospel needs to be preached to others as well. And that's where we come to the end of the book titled To the Ends of the Earth. So what about that? What did you think about that particular chapter? Well, I, I thought it was great. Um, it really just underscores the fact, uh, like, and, and he even mentioned in the chapter as well, because the, the book up to this point has for the most part been about what we do with the gospel mm -hmm. on a personal level and how those realities ought to affect the way that we live and act and think. But in another sense, all of those gospel realities are part of a much bigger picture of which we are only a part, um, in which the work that God is doing in us is like the microcosm of what he is doing on a worldwide level. Yeah. Um, work of which we individually are part, as he said he's, uh, in Second Corinthians 5.19, is reconciling the whole world. Um, yeah. And one of the things that we've been studying in this book is the power that the gospel has in us, the power that the gospel has in eternity, the power that the gospel has in our daily lives. But, but now he wants us to understand the gospel has power in the world, and it was intended to. This is the, this is the plan and purpose of God. Like you said, 2 Corinthians 5.19, the gospel is about God and the world is about God reconciling in Christ the entire world to himself. And he, he uses this 
statement. He says, we are not to be a terminus point Mm -hmm. for the gospel, but rather a way station in its progress to the ends of the earth. I love that phrase. Um, It's very similar to something I like to say often is that the gifts of God, especially the gospel uh, as a gift of God, has not been given to us in order that it would terminate on us. It's meant to be used by us and and, and proclaimed from us so that others can benefit from it as well. And that's what he wants us to understand here in this chapter is that the gospel um, is intended to go to the world. How's it going to get there? How's it going to get to the ends of the earth? Well, uh, I think that's that's the important part. Right. in becoming a part of God's kingdom through the gospel, like you said, we're not the terminus point. We become a means of its transference, and yes, and um, and and that way, it's 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 almost self perpetuating. Yeah, as uh, the gospel begins to reign in the hearts of others, they begin the proclamation and living out of that gospel, so that it begins to more people and more people. Yeah. It's like a, a wonderful virus. Yeah, and he does a really good job here of talking about the you know the kind of the history of Christian missions, uh, especially in our country, um, and then he moves on from that and says, okay, it's not it's not just in our our Christian history, but this is all over the scriptures in the Old Testament. Um, God even promised Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That that promise comes up over and over again. It comes up when God promises that David is going to be. Uh, a conduit of the blessing to the world. He talks about it in the Psalms multiple times about how all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through him. And then what we begin to see is that there are two goals, two parallel goals when it comes to the Great Commission, the blessing of Christ to all the nations and the reign of Christ among all nations. Now, how do, he describes that uh, in terms of the goals, he says the first of these goals is a focus on the need of people. Uh, people need to be saved. People need to be rescued from the wrath of God that is surely coming. And we fall into that category, but we're not the only ones that fall into that category. People all over the world, every person in the world needs to be redeemed and saved from the futility of their sin and the destructive life that is going to lead to to the wrath of God. And Christ is come to bless all the nations with freedom from sin. So we got these two goals. One is the the goal that focuses on the need of people. The other one focuses on the reign of Jesus Christ in the hearts of those people. So one deals with why do we preach the gospel? Because people need the gospel. But the other is why do we preach the gospel? Because Christ deserves the glory that comes with the gospel being believed on by people from every tribe and tongue and language. So when I think about those two things, the rule and reign of Christ, one is primarily for the benefit of the believer, the other is for the benefit of the believer, but it's primarily for the glory of Christ to be seen and known and shared and appreciated. So this is our task, right? The, the task that we have is the proclamation of the gospel in all the nations so that people will come to trust in Christ and be brought under his authority and bring glory and honor to him. Well, I think even in that, you just mentioned the entire purpose of missions. Yeah. Um, I heavily lean on John Piper, and I guess take responsibility for uh, <laughs> for misquoting him if I do. But um, it says the worship is the purpose of missions. Yeah. Um, the only reason why missions exist is because worship doesn't. The reason why we are proclaiming the gospel is because there are people who are not worshiping God and not believing the gospel who need to worship yeah. God and need to 
uh, need to hear the gospel just as the way, or in a way of, and that the gospel restores us back to living the way that God intended us and created us to live, which is totally for his glory. Yeah, when we look at this great commission, this purpose and plan of God for the for the gospel to uh, go to the ends of the earth, it has authority and power and freedom to go to the ends of the earth. And, and it goes through the missionary endeavor, that, uh, that work of men and women taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. But there's going to come a day when missions ceases to exist. Mm-hmm. There will never be a time when worship is not taking place. So you're right. That quote is wonderful, and it's, it sticks in your heart. It sticks in your mind. Missions exist because worship doesn't. There will be a time when missions no longer exist. There will never be a time when we're not worshiping around the throne of God, praising Him for who He is and what He has done. And in the meantime, our response to all of this is that, well, we are to be the active agents in this missionary purpose of God. If all these things is true, if God has promised that the nations will be blessed, that all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and praise Him and worship Him, then how do we respond? Well, well we respond... Well, he gives us a couple of ways here. Number one, he talks about we respond through prayer. Mm-hmm. We should boldly and, and consistently or persistently plead in prayer the promises of God. And then he gives us some, uh, some biblical illustrations there. What did you think about that particular encouragement? Oh, it's fantastic. And it, um, it just reminds us that, as um, one of our brothers told me recently, that our God is a God of, of means. Mm-hmm. Um, we we kind of live in these two truths, these two biblical truths that, A, Christ will build his church, and B, he told us to go. Yeah. So in that, we see that Christ is building his church through us. That's right. So, uh, and I think it's important just as, you know, if you're aware of any of the different viewpoints and things that have been espoused, you know, in the last century or so about the nature of missions, but I think the one thing that we need to make very clear above all other things is that proclamation is the key to the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, that is how God builds his church. It's the proclamation of the gospel. That is that is what he has told us to do. Yeah. Um, and what makes our proclamation so distinct, of course, is the content. Yeah. Um, and honestly, worship through the ages, as some Old Testament scholars would say, has... Has, has always been this way. Um, there are many ways in which a lot of the um, a lot of the things we do, a lot of the religious practices that we do are very similar to those of, of other religions. And it was kind of true in the Old Testament as well. But the one distinct thing that changed all of it and gave it a whole new meaning, a whole new, uh, just a whole new presentation was the content of the worship mm-hmm. and the content of the proclamation. And that is God's ordained means for spreading his gospel. Yeah. So that hearing comes through faith. Yeah. Uh, or wait, no, faith comes through hearing. Sorry. Faith comes through hearing. Almost yeah. engaged in heresy there. Or something <laughs> like that. It happens occasionally. Well, and, and prayer is going to affect that because we're, we're not all going to go on the mission field. Right. Uh, we should all consider that. We should all, um, uh, pray that, that God would help us understand His gifting and, and calling and purpose for our lives. Um, maybe we won't go, but maybe our children will. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that we can all do in engaging in this commission is to pray, to pray for not only missionaries to be raised up. I mean, Jesus tells us, He commands us at several points to pray. 
he tells us to to pray in um, in what we call the model prayer, right? He tells us to pray about the the kingdom of God coming on this earth. We need to continue to do that. Pray for the will of God to be done. He also tells the disciples to pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Mm-hmm. right? So these are some ways that Jesus has specifically commanded us to actively pray that the purpose of God in the gospel to the ends of the earth would be accomplished. Praying for the kingdom to come and praying for laborers to go out into the harvest. And he goes on in, in, in uh, page 171 and he says, There's obviously more to carrying out the Great Commission to prayer I mean, people must go, but we need to broaden our spiritual horizon to get our hearts on what, according to Scripture, is on God's heart. I want us to realize that the gospel is not just about God and me or even about God and the people among whom I live. The gospel is about God and the world. And prayer is one of the ways that we can um, have our hearts tuned to that reality. Now, he says not only must we pray, but we must also go... Um, and, and I'm just so thankful for what God has done here at Cornerstone to give us the opportunity to either go in the sense of our own people going on mission or to send missionaries, right? Uh, we've got folks involved. We've got four different missionary relationships is the way I like to talk about it. Uh, we, we send support and we, we sponsor. So we send our own folks. We're going to Haiti this summer. We've been doing that since 2012. We've got a partnership there with a, um, a, a local church, but also another organization that's like-minded in doctrine and theology. We go and we preach the gospel. We strengthen the church. We, we relate to them and we equip them for that work of ministry. Uh, we also have uh, a brother and sister, Luke and Julie, who have spent the last six years of their life and now just went back to uh, South Asia, and they're going to be spending their time there, strengthening the church, proclaiming the gospel, um, training leaders. Um, we have Vivek Jones and Ann who are here in Philadelphia helping to train them in work that will send them back to South Asia and get involved there. So uh, we have a church in Hungary. All these different ways in which we can be partners, praying for them, sending them, but also Another key to this is financial support. Financial support. So talk about that for just a minute. This is the last thing he talks about on page 172. You, you already mentioned the means, that God uses means. How does that, how does that affect it through our giving? Well, probably in the most obvious sense is, of course, when God establishes the, the will to do something, he'll always also establish the means. But he's put that in our hands in the sense of, keeping us to be responsible with our finances, uh, recognizing that our finances are not our own, or our money yeah. is not our own, I should say that. Um, but that it's it's ultimately His. Yeah. And just like in our prayer life and the things that we pray for, pray for um, those need to be more attuned with God's heart. Sure. So we even with our money, with our prayers and our our prayer life is actually going to say a lot about what we treasure and what we value, just depending on what we're praying for, which yeah. that itself can be convicting sometimes. But yeah. certainly we can look at the way that we use our money and just truly ask ourselves, you know, am I truly recognizing God's lordship in the way I spend my money? Right. And one of the ways that God has called us to do that is to support his church and definitely to support our missionaries as they go out and preach his gospel to people who haven't heard it. Yeah, and one of the things that should be reflected in our budget and one of the reasons why we show our budget to everyone is that our commitment to the spread of the gospel 
should be seen, both here uh, in how we support uh, ministry, staff, uh, the work of the gospel here. We're not spending a bunch of money on pet projects and, and putting up our building, which I, we got a great building, but uh, it's, it's not extravagant in any way. It's, it's a place to gather. It's a place to meet. It's a place to worship. Uh, but the, the bulk of our budget is going towards um, pastors and missionaries, uh, people who are preaching the gospel, who are teaching the gospel uh, around the world. So that should be reflected in uh, our church. And what that does is that hopefully gives confidence to our people as they give. We're not, we're not giving right. um, simply because we want to receive a, a reward in terms of some of the modern things that get passed off as theology. We're not, we're not sowing a seed so that we can reap some benefit. We're giving because Christ has commanded us to. We're giving because it's a mm-hmm. joyful thing for us to give to the spread of the gospel that's changed us. But we want to be able to see that reality reflected in what we're doing as a church and in the budget. Uh, so we pray, we go, and we give. This is part of our commission. This is part of what we do. And I'm going to read this last quote here. Uh, this is the last cha- uh, section, the last paragraph on page 172. He says, The scope of the Great Commission is vast, and the obstacles to its fulfillment are formidable. But as we pray, let us remember the words of Paul. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. God is more than able. The Great Commission will be fulfilled. Will you be a part of it? Will you help others discover the unsearchable riches of Christ that you now enjoy? Well, this has been a great book. Uh, I've enjoyed reading it. I've enjoyed discussing it with you. Cody, thank you for coming on this podcast and helping us talk about it, think about it more deeply, and to appreciate it more. All right. If you want to learn more about Cornerstone Baptist Church, you can find us online at cornerstonewiley.org. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at CBC Wiley. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cornerstonewiley. And you can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play to stay up to date on all the new content as it comes out. Thanks for listening.